You're listening to a Sin podcast. You can listen to this show live by tuning your radio to 90.7 or online at sin.org.au. You're listening to a Sin podcast. You can listen to this show live by tuning your radio to 90.7 or online at sin.org.au. We at Represent would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land on which Sin operates, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sin Media respectfully acknowledges their ancestors and elders, past, present and emerging. We would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ancestors, ancestors of the lands and waters across Australia where our content reaches. Sovereignty has never been ceded, it always was and always will be, Aboriginal land. Kids should go to school. That's what we're committed to. Why do we want to play that? Why do we want it now? I haven't flip-flopped. I said no originally, then I said yes, then I have said no, and I've stuck to it. I didn't need to do this. I've already done a lot of war for the election. The English fought a civil war over this matter, over this matter. Don't deal with the nuance of the Canberra bubble. I don't know what to do with it. We have so much money. What we want is more learning in schools and less activism in schools. Issues that perhaps may be controversial today, but 30 years from now, your children and your grandchildren are going to be thankful that you stood up for what it was right. Represent. 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 You're listening to Represent. Welcome to Represent. Hey, Bridie. Hey, Mimi. It's just us again. Yep. It's it's been a rough start, but we're we're yeah. on the road. We're we going. like messed the panel up, and there if could have been a few from tears. Sin is listening, please turn this off right now. Yeah. <laughs> we took like half an hour trying to sort it out. It anyway, was quite humiliating, but we're was. good. We're good. We're sorted. So welcome back to Sin Media's flagship political discussion program. We here explore current events and politics of the week and especially issues that you guys want to hear. And us. And As us. That's how I meant by you guys. Oh, We're all young, okay. Brady. That's true. That's true. Everyone's young at heart. Every- <laughs> especially at heart. <laughs> so on the show this week, we have a number of exciting p- things planned. Bridie will be giving us the 411 on this week's Australian (laughs) politics. The lowdown. (laughs) Yeah. I will be giving a rundown on Australia's COVID climate. And I will also touch on the expected suspension of MP Gareth Ward over sexual assault allegations and University of Australia's National Student Survey into sexual assault and harassment. But first up, we have a very exciting interview of our own political <laughs> correspondent, George Kostakis. Did he write this himself? No, I did. Oh, <laughs> very generous. More like our absentee. Yeah. Um, he's in Sydney right now and he's going to be interviewing Warwick McGibbon. He's a professor and director of ANU Centre for Applied Macroeconomic Analysis. So they'll be talking all things regarding the Australian economy, especially what that means for young people. So here comes George, who'll be coming in now with Warwick McGiven and the Australian economy. You are back on Sin Represent. Joining me today is an esteemed Australian professor of economics, um, who is Warwick McGibbon, who is a professor at Australia National University. He has published um, over 200 scholarly articles and released several books, um, largely discussing the global economic modelling and general economic um, problems facing everyday Australians. Um, so, 
Thanks for joining us, Warwick. Um, it's very lovely to have you on board today. Um, I'll just get us started with purely, um, you've mentioned before about um, how Australia is kind of holding itself back um, from a climate change perspective, economically speaking. Um, could you kind of tell the audience what you mean by that and how Australia should uh, prepare for the future um, in regards to climate change? Yeah, thanks very much, George. Great to be on the show. Um, so Australia is very lucky because um, we have enormous resources in renewable energy. Uh, we have an enormous capacity to be able to take advantage of all the sun and the wind that we have uh, on our shores. And um, the problem is that the world is currently being driven from an energy point of view based on fossil fuels. And Australia has also been lucky to be endowed with a lot of fossil fuels. But uh, to deal with the climate challenge that we face, those fossil fuels are going to have to be phased out very, very quickly, or at least some technologies uh, invented or, or implemented which can capture the carbon before it enters the atmosphere. That, that's highly unlikely to be a successful strategy. So it seems already the marketplace is dragging in um, solar and wind technologies, uh, transforming the way the economy functions. It's not just in energy that this matters, it's across the board, the way people do things, the way we make things. We need to really change going forward to avoid the challenges that climate change are already bringing with the floods and the fires that we've seen in Australia, but that's just not an Australian phenomenon, it's happening all over the world. So this is a major change of the world economy and Australia is a key part of that adjustment process. Yeah, definitely. It's um, not only are there kind of the short-term implications of you know, economic responses to climate change, but it's also you know, the right in front of us, you know, the flooding um, and all these things that could be mitigated from a climate change perspective. Um, just going off that um, with like, there's some climate change policies or economic principles that have been put in place, including things like the Green New Deal, um, especially in America, and kind of these green incentivized um, economic policies that could be in place. What, what is kind of your opinion on that? Well, I think the first thing that really matters in this space is, is the governments themselves won't be doing the spending that's going to transform the uh, society. It's going to be coming from the private sector and from people. Uh, just regular people and the way they, what they buy, how they live their lives. And so what the government needs to do is to have a strategy which is bipartisan. So we need both sides of politics to agree on the core principles behind any policy framework so that when there's an election, you don't get a new government with a totally different set of policies. You need policies which uh, companies can plan over the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years of how households, if they're buying an automobile, do they buy a battery powered car or do they buy a um, a regular petroleum powered car. These decisions by everybody in the economy matter. And while you don't know what the government's framework is, you're not going to be making the right decisions. So first point is there has to be consensus on the broad thrust of what climate policy would look like. Uh, secondly, you, it's not just one thing that you have to do. You have to change people's behaviour. That can be done through information, but a very effective way of doing it is to change the price of car in economy so that if you want to use coal, that still be allowable, but it has to be, uh, you have to charge the price of coal that incorporates the cost of the pollution that comes from burning uh, coal and other fossil fuels. And to do that, the optimal strategy from economics is to have a price on carbon that rises over time. So that up front, you might have a small price, but what's really important is the price people see in a futures market or in some other market five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, so they can see if they change their behavior today, they can avoid paying those high prices in the future. So if you think about carbon pricing, which is what an economist would want, it's better to have a low carbon price in the 
beginning because that's the cost. That's a cost into the economy. But the opportunity is the long-term carbon prices that you can avoid. And so that's the, the best policy framework is one that's credible and is putting enormous cost on it, continuing what we're doing in the future so that everyone front loads their adjustment today at lowest cost. And that way it gives you a nice balance between the environmental outcomes, which is reducing emissions as quickly as possible, but also minimizing the cost because these costs do cost jobs. They also create jobs. If you do it right, you have new industries emerging where that's where the workers of the future should be going. Um, but it's got to be done in a way which gives you the pricing signal. And then the idea of a Green New Deal, as you mentioned, it has to be designed well. It has to be government spending to put in infrastructure, uh, transportation technologies to enable charging of electric vehicles, the sort of things that an individual company may not produce because they don't take into account the public benefit, they only take into account the private gain. So you need to make sure that there is a role for government and also a role for government in regulating the emergence of all these new technologies. So there's a nice balance if it can be struck, which is probably a win-win for the climate and also for the economy. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I completely agree with a lot of things they were saying there. And um, I think one of the things that struck out to me a lot is the emergence of, um, especially in today's economy when petrol prices are really expensive and um, there really isn't a push, I don't think, in Australia to kind of incentivize um, electric vehicles. Um, I know in European countries, there's a lot of subsidizing of um, electronic vehicles, which can come down to as low as like $20,000. Um, whereas in Australia, from a climate change perspective and also from an economic perspective, um, it'd be really good to see a federal government perhaps incentivize um, electric vehicles, um, especially to make them more affordable and just better for the environment and will we'll leave less families out of pocket. Um, just going on with that, with just more like federal policies that are put in place, as we know, there's a federal election coming up um, in, in May. Um, what do you think, economically speaking, um, should be one of the major ideas um, put in place or one of the major policies that, say, a Labour or Liberal um, Party could uh, campaign on? I think the most important thing is not just the incentives, it's to remove the disincentives. So there's a lot of policies, a lot of subsidies to advert certain activities in the economy, which encourage the use of, of, of energy, but also fossil fuels. And so the first stage, which would be very cost effective, in fact, would increase well-being of a lot of people, would be to remove those incentives which are working in the wrong direction. Um, we, we did some work oh, 20, 20 years ago now looking at um, the Kyoto Protocol and what what should you do at the first stage? And we found in our modeling that if you uh, got rid of all the subsidies to fossil fuels around the world, that would raise incomes around the world and it would reduce emissions by more than the Kyoto Protocol Agreement had committed to. And so there are these distortions in the, in the economy, not just in Australia, but around the world, which encourage the uptake of, um, of polluting activities. So first thing is get rid of those things that you, they're giving the, the wrong incentives. And then you can overlay that with where the government may, may pay, play a positive role. Um, it may not be direct subsidies to, motive, to, to um, battery powered vehicles, but it may be removing the, the luxury car tax from battery powered vehicles because they're so expensive when you get into Australia, you automatically fall into a luxury car, luxury car tax bracket and therefore you pay additional taxes. So there are ways in which you can remove distortions. And I think that's, that's kind of the strategy I would look at um, you, you never make good policy in an election campaign. I mean, that's the reality. Um, neither side of politics has ever proposed anything in an election campaign which turned out to be good policy. So that has to be done in a, in a, 
uh, after the election in consultation with community, in consultation with industry, in consultation with unions, you need a collective will to actually start changing the way we do things. And so I, I'm not optimistic that um, what we hear in the election campaigns is going to be very useful, but I'm hopeful that whoever wins government, they'll, and I think you'll find that it will be a government that doesn't have an absolute majority. And so the role of independence will be very important. And we hope that we vote in independents that are in the center of the political spectrum and not at either of the extremes. And then we might have an opportunity. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's a very good, very good point. Thanks for inputting that. Um, just going on further, um, sticking clear from maybe climate change a little bit and just like economic um, inequalities that are kind of taking um, you know Australia by storm a little bit, especially after coming out of a recession and coming out of all the COVID heartbreaks that um, we've had over the last two years or so and how liberal disposable income families are having and young people are having. Um, I'm specifically thinking about how underemployment and casualized work is becoming more and more common um, in Australian society and worldwide in general. Um, what kind of could be done to kind of give more stability to these um, to young workers or families in general um, from an economic perspective? Well, George, that's, that's the big question. I mean, COVID has definitely been a problem for younger people in particular. Uh, it's created job destruction. It's really stalled people's lives for a significant part of their life, actually. Uh, it's made a lot of people's lives much harder. Um, I think one of the things, and one I'm particularly interested in is, is the idea that um, there should be a lot more participation in the labour force uh, of, of women, particularly women who have children. And so one of the key issues, I think, is how to get greater participation coming from uh, women. And I think you can do that through something, and it may not be very popular with your listening base, but the idea that, um, that when we, people want a higher education, they get a HEX loan and they go and get educated. And if their incomes rise above a certain level, then they start to paying that back through the tax system, a zero interest loan, where society benefits. And that's why we give a subsidy because higher education or any education is very good for everybody as well as the person that receives it. But you could do the same sort of thing with um, parental leave. So if, um, you could have a family parental leave where, the, where you get um, a subsidized daycare to look after the children. And then if the family income ever goes above a very high threshold, then that family would have to pay it back through the tax system very gradually, just like a hex debt is for a, for a student. And so that sort of idea of not other taxpayers paying for the benefit of an individual, but the idea that all of society will contribute. And then if, this, if the individual financially does well out of it, then that can be paid back through uh, the hex style system. And I think those sort of ideas of government being an insurer or government being taking the benefits from society and making it an individual's interest to then take advantage of those opportunities is the way we should move forward. That, that does, that's one aspect for a lot of jobs for younger people. Um, it, 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 it's, a very, it's not an area that I actually work in in terms of labour economics, but it seems to me that's a key area that we have to address. Um, Casualisation is, is a problem. Uh, it, it creates enormous risk for an individual because they just don't know what their income will be from one day to the next. And, that creates a lot of um, a lot of problems. So I think there are a lot of work to be done in this area, but I do think the paid parental leave is something you could do very quickly and it would not cost the taxpayer very much at all, but it would give great opportunity to a number of people at the moment who can't go out and get a job because they've got to stay home and look after the kids. And if they do get a job, they actually lose income because they've got to pay for the daycare. And so I think those, those disincentives at the, at the margin are really where we should focus. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, it's really interesting that you touch on um, how, you know, maybe interest-free loans or um, similar ideas to the hacks could actually in, impact um, how not only uni students, but also, you know, other marginalized um, demographics of society. Um, but yeah, th thank, thank you so much for your time today, Warwick. I won't take up too much of your time. I know you're a very busy man. Um, I've got, I'm sure the ANU is missing your presence there right now talking to us. But with, I thank you very much for your time today and wish you all the best <laughs> for the future. Yeah, thanks, George. And, um, and good luck with the ventures going forward. We need more, more people like you out there spreading, spreading the word. Great. Thank you so much, Warwick. Okay, thanks very much. That was George talking to Warwick. Um, we can talk to George next week and we'll, like, get a vibe on, like, what he thought, you know. We'll get the lowdown. Yeah, the real-life lowdown. Because he's recording this remotely. So, I know... I don't even know if we've ever actually talked about COVID on this. I think we have. Have we? Have we? Okay, like, surely. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> but I feel like it's been a while. It and I feel like there's kind of, like, a lot of questions about, like, what will happen next kind of vibes. So, we thought we'd go over it for you. So, as you've probably heard, there's a new variant. It's um, the BA.2 Omicron subvariant. So, it's like a subvariant of the Omicron one. Um, and it's been working its way around Australia. It's been touring <laughs> Australia yeah, for a few weeks now. Um, and it is the most dominant variant along the East Coast. So, like, people who are getting COVID now are probably getting this. Yeah. Um, should we be worried? Um, it's a fair, it's a fair question. Um, what will life with this new variant look like and will again. restrictions be reimposed? Um, and what will the government's response be? Um, so this week, ABC News Daily, Sam Hawley spoke with an epidemiologist, Tony Blakely. And I think he gives a really reasonable overview of what's, like, likely to happen next. It doesn't feel catastrophized or, like, stressful. And he's really calm. If you want to listen to it, he, his voice is really calming. Um, <laughs> it made me feel really good because I, like, hate listening to COVID stuff. It makes my chest tighten. Yeah, it makes you want to like, crawl into a ball and cry. Yeah. Um, I just get really upset. I just think it takes me back to, like, two years ago and yeah. just the, the depression. At that point, like... Okay, no, this is so irrelevant. Never mind. Okay. Share your feelings, buddy. It's just going to be a little lockdown. Like, yeah, during the lockdowns, I was, like, just kind of getting through it. Then when I look back, I was like, oh, my God, I was so sad. I couldn't go out. I couldn't do anything. I was so, like, depressed. Literally, though, I feel like I didn't think I was that upset. But then when yeah. I look back at how I was acting, I was like, so upset. Oh, like, girl. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we kind of think that this, like, is a fear for a lot of young people that restrictions could be reimposed. And it is really scary. It personally terrifies me. But as I said, I would say his perspective is, like, a really good one to listen to. But I'll go over some of the key things that he speaks about. Um, so he was quite confident. In fact, he said 98 percent confident that this next wave of infection will not be as big as the one over Christmas. He talks about the beloved nightclubs, which Bridey hasn't yet entered, but yep. she will soon. <laughs> and You'll be my first club trip, Mimi. I'll yeah, you. I'll invite you over and we can, we can pray and go clubbing. But, um, Sounds fun. And, like, he talks about the nightclubs and I'm like, no, Sam Hawley actually asks about the nightclubs and I'm like, don't mention the nightclubs, Sam. <laughs> Just don't. But he actually points out um, that obviously there's a lot of a dif different opinions about reimposing restrictions, but he believes that he would not reinstate, reinstate restrictions at this point in time. He's very specific at this point in time. He obviously doesn't want to, <laughs> like, bite himself in the butt, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so he reiterates that the reality is, is that this virus is going to affect people and it needs to affect as many people as possible to peter out. Like, to get rid of a virus, it needs to, like, it needs to have a large infection rate. 
And so he kind of points out that infecting fit and young, healthy people, the type of people who are going to nightclubs, is a good thing. Like, wouldn't we rather spread the virus on the dance floor than in aged care facilities? So he points out that, like, we shouldn't get rid of the environments that, like, healthy transmission can happen at. Like, we shouldn't get rid of nightclubs. Instead, we should be, like, more careful about who gets to visit aged care facilities or who is visiting these vulnerable people. Like, that's the stuff that's kind of more important. Um, he does say, though, that if the health system begins to struggle, then, yes, we should put those restrictions back in place. Um, so it kind of sounds like it's not about the spread, but it's about the pressure that it puts on healthcare and, of course, those people, like, people who are vulnerable who need those facilities the most, obviously should be able to access them with ease. So in terms of government action, like, what's actually happening right now, states such as Queensland do seem to be, like, kind of concerned. I read an article yesterday that they were kind of, like, um almost like oh should we because like they had a 15 percent increase in case numbers in one day i'm sure this is kind of probably similar to like every other state i mean they've been going up a lot in new south wales too we just don't really care anymore and the australian health protection principal committee they had a meeting yesterday but i tried to look up what happened and I, I couldn't find anything so it may, that's own. probably a good thing hey um, <laughs> don't want to freak yourself out anymore yeah exactly so they had a meeting yesterday but I mean I presume it went well hopefully it <laughs> good did for them. good for them <laughs> had a little um, chat yeah but anyway Brady, how do you feel about all this are you worried you've kind of already explained yeah but... I am worried I mean I don't want to go back into a lockdown but I'm not sure that I agree with him that we should be sort of not worrying about infections I think that we still need to think about like Obviously not, like, fully close the nightclubs, but I don't think that density limits, if they're not overly ridiculous, I don't think that's such a bad idea. I think even if it's infecting, like, all fit and healthy young people, like, there's still some people that are going to get really sick and maybe die, well, presumably, depending on how many people it infects, right? So I don't know. I'm not super agreeing with him, but obviously, like, it is more about the health system and the aged care system and disability care facilities, like all of that is way more important. So I would be focusing on that rather than specifically case numbers. Hmm. So what would like a good balance look like? Like if you think he might be being a bit too like nonchalant. Yeah, I do think he's a bit bit less fair. (laughs) (laughs) What would your like good balance look like? I think that density limits in things like clubs. and But also, I at risk of saying the PR word, the personal responsibility word, I think it's more everyone kind of makes their own decisions. And, you know, I'm a bit more cautious about COVID. Actually, I haven't had it yet. Wow. I think it's very different. This might be controversial. I don't know. You can tell me I'm wrong. But I think it's very different when you haven't had it. I feel like everyone I met who hasn't had it is more cautious, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think so. Don't I think, think so. Yeah, some people who've had it or have had it in the house are still cautious. Mm, yeah. Because, okay. I mean, you can get it again. Maybe it's just my young demographic because yeah. I kind of hang around. Like, I don't hang around any old people. <laughs> you know, I have parents around. Not so. into the old fart lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, like, worrying about anyone but myself, of course. Of course. <laughs> um, so I think my last question and kind of – I guess my personal opinion as well is the way that these um, restrictions affect young people's mental health. And I know that obviously no matter what age, this pandemic has taken a 
a section of your life that you wanted to experience. Yeah. And I know that every age group will have something like that, mm. but I do think it is really heavily impacting young people. Yeah, definitely. Like people, you know, I mean, you had, did you graduate in 2020? I moved to Melbourne like a few weeks before the pandemic started. Oh, so okay. I graduated so in 2019, 2019 and I started uni here yeah, in Yeah, so you had two years of not going on campus. Yeah. I missed out. This is my on, first year on campus. Yeah, I missed out on year ten and year eleven entirely, and everything that goes along with being, you know, fifteen and sixteen. <laughs> um, so yeah, like it's so important to try and do this stuff. But I mean, like try and keep things open, but there's a balance. Yeah. And I don't know if we've reached that. Like, there's a lot of COVID around. I'm gonna oh. hand over to Bridie. Yeah, we're going to talk about Ozpol, Australian politics. So this is something that I think we're going to do for the rest of the weeks until the election. So we'll do a little segment every week, um, probably with a couple of smaller stories that I think are still important, but we're going to focus mostly on like the biggest one. So the smaller stories I have are that today we've agreed, we as in Australia, <laughs> have agreed to take uh, to resettle 450 refugees in New Zealand. So as recently as 2018 and 2019, Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison said that they wouldn't do this. But uh, they've backflipped and, yeah, 450 refugees from Nauru and that are already in Australia are going to be resettled. And it's only taken nine years for the Australian government to agree to this offer. It was offered while Julia Gillard was PM and then the coalition took over. So, next one. Nick Xenophon, who was a South Australian senator who was defeated in 2016, has decided to run in South Australia again for the Senate. Victorian Liberal MP uh, Wendy Lovell has today said that basically that the government shouldn't put social housing in wealthy suburbs like Bright as the poor kids wouldn't be able to mix with the wealthy kids because they wouldn't have the latest sneakers and the latest iPhone to talk about which that's, just doesn't make sense yeah like that's what? just crazy there's so many words i want to say that i can't use right on radio dan andrews <laughs> responded in quite a nice way uh he said i reject in the clearest terms the liberal party's view that poor people should be kept poor and poor people should be kept away that is wrong that is fundamentally wrong and I would say, yes, it is. Josh Frydenberg's challenger in Kuyong, Dr. Monique Ryan, said today that she's raised over $950,000 as an independent, which is a lot, um, obviously. And she's expecting the treasurer to spend over $2.8 million on his campaign, which is also a lot of money. And our last little story is that Zoe Daniel, the independent candidate in Goldstein, has won her court case, I believe yesterday or maybe the day before, that Tim Wilson launched about campaign signs because Tim Wilson, the Liberal sitting member, said, oh, um, like, you can't put campaign signs up because they haven't called the election, which is just so kind of weird, <laughs> such a weird thing to take up. But... And, but she took it to court and she won. So people who support her can put up those vote one Zoe Daniel signs. So good for her. So the big story this week is the internal party bullying allegations in the wake of Kimberly Kitching, Senator Kimberly Kitching's shock death. There's been a lot of focus on the quote unquote mean girls in Labour, which is Penny Wong, Katie Gallagher and Christina Keneally. 
who have allegedly been bullied, who were allegedly bullying Kimberly Kitching. And so people have sort of been implying that this led to stress, which led to her death, a shock death of a heart attack uh, a couple of weeks ago. So personally, I think the focus on Penny Wong in particular is not what should be making the headlines. I think it's like it's very much been Penny Wong did this, Penny Wong did that. To me, it kind of feels just like a way for people to express their racist, misogynistic or homophobic sentiments in a way that's not explicitly saying it. I don't know, maybe that's just me, but yeah. No, I definitely agree. I think, I'm trying to say this in the right, right way, I think whatever happened, it's not obviously a culture that has been started by solely Penny Wong. Exactly. Like it's internal. That's what it, a culture yeah. is. It's not one person. And I think we're taking someone to scapegoat. Yeah. And That's we're taking the word that I've have been looking we're for. We're taking all day. someone to scapegoat and we're using their identifiers that like people aren't you, like some people aren't comfortable with. Yeah. And we're using like those to scapegoat her out, whether it be yeah, um, yeah, sexual orientation, ra- um, <clears throat> race, like or race, gender. race or gender. I just think that yeah, we've found a scapegoat. Well, the media has found a scapegoat. It's obviously a problem in both parties. Yeah, it's a part. Well, you've just led right into my next point. If you ask me, what should be the number one focus is that there's a really terrible and toxic culture within both political parties. <laughs> Okay, guys, I'm just going to start off with a trigger warning. So this part of the segment mentions sexual assault and violence. Listeners who may find this content distressing can tune back in in around eight minutes and we'll have a song and we'll wrap up today's show. If you need any further support today, you can contact any one of these sexual support assault support services 1800 respect national hotline at 1800-73732 lifeline on 131114 and beyond blue on 1300 224636 so um again guys i know um it's a heavy topic but really important to talk about um firstly we're going to talk about this is well the suspension he got suspended today when i wrote this yesterday he hadn't been suspended yet so he was suspended today mp gareth ward who is facing two sexual assault charges and then we're going to look at the universities australia so like not an actual university it's like the 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 governing body kind of of vibe because i feel like it sounds confusing when i say universities australia it just sounds weird but anyway their national student safety survey into sexual harassment and assault First, we'll start off with these parliament allegations. So today, uh, well, yes. So sorry, I've written this in past tense. It's confusing me. So today, um, MP Gareth Ward was suspended. The New South Wales government suspended him. He was charged with two separate instances of sexual assault back in 2013 and 2015, a 17-year-old boy and a 27-year-old man, which is really devastating. But Ward is denying the charges and he was resisting calls from the... Well, he actually did resist calls to resign. Um, He refused to resign, so they had to pass a motion to suspend him. Yes. Which I think is so bad. Like, anyway, that's just me. Um, So the Premier, Dominic Perrottet... Um, he was on paternity leave and he really? broke this. Yes, yes. That's why I haven't heard about him, Faye. Yeah, he's on paternity leave and he there came back for this. So ah, good for him. I think that's kind of like really good thing, don't you? Yeah. Like, anyway, taking something seriously. Um, so he came back to like do this motion, as Bridie said, and since then Ward has publicly stated that he looks forward to clearing his name in court. 
and Scott Morrison is yet to make a comment. Bridie, how do you think the New South Wales government has handled this situation? Look, I don't know. I think, I mean, he's suspended. So, like, it's been, like, that's what should have happened. He should have resigned. Even if it isn't true, these are charges that are so unacceptable anywhere. I don't think that he should be in Parliament, if even if he's being accused of them, even if they're false accusations. Like, even if he gets found guilty... I mean, sorry, not guilty. <laughs> um, yeah, I just think... He should have resigned, but he's gone now, so I guess... Like, yeah. that's... You know, we reached kind of the desired outcome. Yeah. Um, do you think he should have been expelled instead? Yeah, that would have said more. <laughs> sorry, they're quite dry answers. Nah, I like the, you know bang on to the point this is a subject we should be really clear about so yeah. i appreciate okay. it um we'll go into the survey by universities australia um the survey investigated claims of sexual harassment and sexual assault across 39 australian universities these are these a lot yeah yeah i didn't really know we had 39 Me universities <laughs> um i guess like I don't know. I feel like people never think about the ones that aren't the brownstone. Oh, there's 43, 43. total. So I wonder who got left out. Uh, 40 Australian universities, two international universities, and one private specialty university. Right. So they I only left out that. one. Yeah. Like, who was it? Don't know. I feel bad for them. So this is going to be kind of quick fire. Like, so one in six Australians have been sexually harassed since beginning uni, as in since starting their degree, not since the start of this year. So since starting their degree and one in 20 have been sexually assaulted. One of the most important findings of that was that these survivors didn't know how to report the sexual misconduct to their respective institutions, which now I think about it, I, I would have absolutely no idea how to report something to the University of Melbourne. Like, yeah. I mean. Yeah. Female students, transgender, non-binary and queer students were more likely to experience sexual harassment or assault as well as those with disabilities. This is nothing new. This is obvious. What I thought was really alarming though, and I know it's obvious, but it's just always alarming when you hear it in a statistic, but 85% of the perpetrators were male, which is... Just, I know we know that, but like, know, it's know. just scary every when time you, you say it, it like that. Yeah, yeah, it's scary. Anyway, and this is also scary. One in 20 were university staff, which... That is bad. That's really, really cooked. These instances were more likely to take pl- place in clubs or society events or at uni student ACOM, which... Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've been... I'm in year 12 and I hear bad stories about student accommodation yeah i went to college have i told you that no yeah i went to uh, college i went to newman college a and u in canberra had the highest rate of incidences i'm surprised at that really yeah i mean i'm actually when i think about it i'm not because everyone lives on campus not everyone but lots and lots and lots of people live on campus probably a higher proportion than most other unis but they very much market themselves as very safe university Maybe they're not. And so as we've already discussed on the show two weeks prior, this survey kind of focused on the idea that um, a lot of anonymous students obviously made submissions and these were based around the idea that when they reported this misconduct, they were essentially let down by their institution. Um, We've seen this front and centre at the University of Melbourne when we talked about Miss Boonin's most recent complaint and how they basically told her to go away and we don't care, which is obviously appalling. Of course... 
the Universities Australia, the, the people who ran the survey, has come out with a list of recommendations. It's the usual things that we always hear about, teaching about consent and respectful relationships, having a better reporting system. You would think that the amount that we say these things, change would happen. Well, exactly. Like, I don't think... I've ever seen I don't think anything will I don't think I don't think any university is going to look at this survey and actually do anything about it yeah that's probably gonna be a strong claim but yeah maybe maybe we'll get sued for defamation <laughs> maybe <laughs> well by all 39 universities <laughs> <laughs> Bridie will have to go to the university next year the one that was left out because they'll yeah. be the only one that will take yeah. her after this <laughs> That's true, that's true. Um, all right, guys, we'll go into a song and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah. Wrap up today's show. I'm just going to wrap up the show now, I guess. Yeah. I'm always so sad to say goodbye. I know, me too. I always <laughs> want to finish. But I'm always starting, I'm like, right, I want to get in and I want to get out. But then, and then it we gets to this get and I'm going like, and we're like, yeah, let's keep Daddy, going. What should we talk about now? <laughs> Okay, well, I guess we have to say goodbye. Um, thanks for tuning in to Represent here on Sin. We've been your hosts, Bridie and Mimi. You can keep up to date and let us know what you thought of the show on our socials. Find us at Sin Represent on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. I posted some bomb. They are so good. We actually got a lot of views, like 500. Yeah, I think so. I thought that was quite good. Me too. I was, I was surprised. Is it? It's a different username, isn't it? There's a dot in it somewhere. Sin dot represent. I couldn't do... Well, no, I was just going to do represent, and then I couldn't do represent. So I'm already taking it. And then I think it's sin... No, it's represent dot sin, I think. Yeah, I think it's represent dot sin. Um, so, yeah, look that up. Um, if you want to hear this episode again or catch up on any of our old episodes, you can find our podcast on Omni at represent or on Spotify. And remember to stay political. Bye, guys. You've been listening to a Sin Media Podcast, where young people run the show.